Welcome to the Together for Good podcast brought to you by Bethany Lutheran Church in Cherry Hills Village, Colorado. Our episode today during this Easter week is a Bible study. We haven't done a Bible study together in a long time through the podcast, and so I thought it was high time to bring that back. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. This is Luke's version of the Easter morning story. It's different than the one we heard on Sunday, so I thought it would be fun to dive into it a little more fully and look at some of the subtle details that live there. As always, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for sharing this podcast with family and friends. I do hope you continue to pass it around so that other people uh, can enjoy the content. We have a lot of great ideas that we're excited about coming up for the weeks ahead, and it has just been a fun way for us to give you way more information than we could ever give you on a Sunday morning about a lot of these things. Uh, So thanks for listening and for your kind comments and emails. Uh, We really appreciate that. If you think of it, feel free to find us on the iTunes store and leave us a review and a rating. That does help other people find it. Or just feel free to post a link to the podcast website on your social media channels. That also helps other people find and discover this. Uh, We really appreciate your support. But now, let's get right into it. A thorough Bible study on Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Happy Easter, everyone. We are gathering on this podcast through digital means, through your headphones and speakers. And because it is the Easter season, because we just celebrated that great Christ, that great Easter miracle of Jesus's resurrection, I thought we should do a intense Bible study of one of the resurrection stories. This is different than the one we heard read on Sunday as part of our worship gatherings. This is the Luke version of the Easter story, but I like Luke's version of it because there's some added details that I think are just really interesting. And we haven't done one of these Bible studies in a while where I just talk about a Bible passage and we go verse by verse and learn some little nuggets along the way. So I thought it would be a good thing too, is that this is a great story that we all want to know more about and and immerse ourselves in more fully. So let's study Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 11. Let's begin with that first verse. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. This is the women who are going to the tomb on the first day of the week. Here's what's important about that little subtle detail. And again, this is why we do these Bible studies. It's so interesting. There's so much depth and beauty and so many interesting things that are found in the tiniest little details of the scripture passages. But this line, on the first day of the week. So in Judaism, there is this belief that the the week runs from Sunday until Saturday. God creates the world in six days and then rests on the seventh. That's how a week was established. But then it says that Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. And so within theological circles, we talk about this as the eighth day. If it's the first day of the week, then that means it's the beginning of a new week. It's after the seventh day, the Sabbath and the rest. It is the eighth day of the week. And so This is God beginning creation again. It's the next week. It's after six days and the seventh day of resting. On the first day of the new week, on the eighth day, the world begins again. And of course, that's how we understand the resurrection is that this is God, the creator, the one who established the heavens and the earth in seven days, 
This is that same God doing a new thing and bringing new life from where death once was. If you look at many baptismal fonts in churches, you will notice that many of them are eight-sided. They're octagons. Here at Bethany Lutheran Church, we have a beautiful baptismal font that is eight-sided. It's an octagon. The reason being isn't so that the baptismal font will look like a stop sign and you'll stop and get baptized, although that might be a good idea. The reason is that it's eight-sided because baptism is an acknowledgement of the eighth day, when creation begins again, when we are resurrected. So that's the idea being brought up at this moment. The women are going to the tomb in order to take part in the typical burial rituals of that time. But what they don't realize is that creation is beginning again, that God is doing a new thing, that the eighth day is just starting. Okay, let's see what happens in the next verses. The women found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. A word about these stones that are used to cover tombs in those days, they would have been immensely heavy. No one person would have been able to move a stone that covered a grave on their own. More than likely, what these looked like, too, is that they were, they were disc, they, more than likely, these aren't disc-shaped stones. That's commonly what you'll see when you see a picture, is it looks like it's this, you know, this big circle that, you know, you would think with enough momentum could easily be rolled aside. But in those days, actually, what archaeologists have found is that the types of stones commonly used to cover up graves would have been more cork-shaped. So they would have kind of been fit and, and wedged into the space. Those were far more common in Jerusalem during the first century. And so that gives you an idea, too, of that it really would have been very, very difficult to move something like that, that, that fits like a glove, away from the tomb. And actually, not in this passage, but in Mark 16, in Mark's version of the resurrection story, the women who go to the tomb talk about this. They, they wonder how they're going to roll the stone away in order to anoint the body with spices. Interesting, right? And so, anyways, the women get to the tomb, and they notice that it's open. And so they enter the tomb to go anoint the body with the spices that they had prepared. But the body is not there. There is something very powerful about the image of an empty tomb. An empty tomb speaks of possibility and mystery. There's not a clear answer when you think about an empty tomb. But there are a lot of questions. And what's really fascinating, Mark's gospel, again, I'm talking about Mark's gospel a lot, and that's not the one we're studying today, but just make mention, Mark's gospel tends to end just with the image of an empty tomb. There is this addition to Mark chapter 16 that scholars universally believe was added on later, where it talks about Jesus being seen as resurrected. But most of it, of Mark's gospel is just, the typical ending to Mark's gospel, I should say, is an empty tomb, an image of an empty tomb, and then sort of an ellipsis, a dot, dot, dot. Okay, the tomb is empty, dot, dot, dot. What does that mean? If you've ever seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, that's how he ends his telling of the Jesus story. And while many people debate, you know, do you have to see the resurrected Jesus? Is that what's most important? I do think there's something very just interesting about the image of an empty tomb, especially when you think about that image in the context of everything that's come before it. 
all of Jesus' predictions, all of his miracles, all of his ministry, then leading up to his death and crucifixion. But wait, on the first day of the week, the tomb is empty. What does that mean? I think that's part of how Mark wanted us to read his gospel, was to ask ourselves that personal question. Well, if the tomb is empty, what are we going to believe about it? How are we going to act? How are we going to respond? I like the way that an empty tomb really gives us an open-ended question to, to puzzle with, to think about, a question that can give our life a lot of meaning and purpose and direction. All right, that's enough about the empty tomb because Luke actually doesn't end there, but it is an important concept, I think. Verse 4. While the women were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. It's funny. These women weren't perplexed about the stone being rolled away, which, as we discussed, would have been quite a feat. But they're perplexed about the missing body. And what's a little ironic is that they had likely heard Jesus say that he would die and three days later rise again. It's just funny the things that they chose to be perplexed about. And isn't that the case for us? The things we choose to be perplexed about. But they see two men in dazzling white clothes. This is a sign of glory. Uh, There's one other point in Luke's gospel when we hear someone described as wearing dazzling white clothes. It's Jesus during his transfiguration. It's in Luke chapter 9, and we hear about Jesus and how his clothes were changed to dazzling white. Something glorious happened on that mountain for Jesus' transfiguration. And Luke is now connecting that and saying, yes, something glorious is happening in this empty tomb. More than likely, these two men, they're presumed to be angels. Uh, Just a reminder that the Greek term for angel means messenger. That's very often how an angel uh, plays their part within the scriptures. We, We have many new ideas about what angels are, thanks to popular culture and movies and films and touched by an angel. But um, in biblical times, and in the way the Bible often describes angels, more often than not, angels are simply there as messengers. They're some sort of glorious mouthpiece of God that comes to deliver a message. And as we'll see, that's exactly what these two men in dazzling white clothes Uh, That's the role they're going to play for the women. So here we are at verse 5. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. The women here, they bow their heads out of fear and reverence. They recognize something glorious, some sort of presence of God in this moment. And the angels, the messengers... They let them know that Jesus is risen. They fill in some of the gaps that have existed to this point. And then they ask them that powerful, important question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? I love that line because I think that particular question gets at the heart of our human predicament. Don't we do this all the time? We look for the living among the dead. We look for life and possibility in places that don't offer that. Death is the power of the devil, the work of the devil, um, the work of evil forces in the world. And we often fall prey to the devil's temptations. We look for life and hope in places that are actually hubs of evil and death. A great example of this, addiction. 
often starts off, whatever form it might take, but it often starts off with people looking for a different way of life. They have trouble dealing with the stress. They have trouble dealing with a situation or pain. They're looking for a cure for depression or a relief from their ailments. And instead of looking for life in places where God has promised life, we look for life in a place that can only lead to death. We see this play out in so many other ways as well. But I just think that that is a great question to meditate on day after day. Why do we look for the living among the dead? To be more specific too, where are we looking for life in a place that clearly can offer us no hope? This is the tricky struggle of our walk of faith, um, but there is so much promise in also connecting those words to the situation at hand in the scriptures. Why do we look for the living amongst the dead when we know that Jesus has already defeated death? When we know that resurrection life is still possible, that new beginnings can happen by the power of God. There's a lot to explore there. Um, I'll just leave it at that for now, but I encourage you to, to meditate and dwell deeply on that question from the angels in the empty tomb. Let's move on to verse 6 and 7. Remember, this is the angel still talking. Remember how Jesus told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again? The messengers remind the women that this was all part of Jesus' plan. He told them that he was going to come and die and rise again. Remembering is such a powerful spiritual practice. We are such forgetful people. And oftentimes we just need to be reminded of what Jesus has already done. We just need to be reminded of the power of God at work in the world. We forget as we get caught up in the throes of life. That's why we tell the same story every single year. (laughs) Every Easter, we tell the resurrection story. We also tell the Good Friday story because all of it is important for us to remember. Just all of what Jesus went through for our sake and all of the ways that hope and new life is still possible even in the most dire of circumstances. Remind yourself and remind others of these truths. I promise you, it is a powerful thing to do. Even though you might know the story, it does help to be reminded of it. I've talked about this in many situations and podcasts and sermons and who knows what else. But within Judaism, they focus a lot on the idea of remembering. And in Christian circles as well, we, we draw from that, that, that spiritual practice of remembering comes to us from our Jewish roots. And the, the, in Judaism, remembering is, is one of the most important things you can do as a practice of faith. They talk about sin as being forgetful. Whenever we forget who God is and who God has called us to be, they say that's when we're falling into sin. And so the remedy for that is to simply remember what God has done and who God has called you to be. You look at the Ten Commandments, and so many of them are written with the remember as the first word. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember that God is your creator and you shall have no other gods before him. You get the idea. Uh, That's also why rituals and traditions, liturgical practices, all of that, it's why it's so repetitious is so that you remember, so that you are reminded of the promises of God while walking through and experiencing all that. That's enough about remembering for now. But wait, no, it's not. Here we get to verse 8. Then the women 
remembered his words. <laughs> they remembered his words. Remembering is a powerful act of faith, as I've said all along. Uh, remembering God is the heart of practicing our faith. And so we would do well to just take time to remember God each and every day and to tell the same stories again and again so that we can remember their promises. Moving on to 9 and 10 now. And returning from the tomb, the women told all this to the 11 disciples and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene, Jonah, Mary the mother, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. Note the scripture tells us there are only 11 apostles now because, of course, Judas has betrayed Jesus and is no longer amongst the 12. And they give us the specific names of the women. Hey, have we ever realized that women were the first evangelists? The first people to go and tell the good news of Christ's resurrection were these three women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. Telling the story is at the heart of our Christian witness. Whether we're telling it to people for the first time so that they can have their life transformed by these stories and promises, or whether we're telling it for the thousandth time so that we might remember the promises of this story. We see this combination right here in remembering and sharing. That really is so much of what it means to be a practicing person of faith. And we see it right at the start with these three women. Moving on to 11. But these words seemed to the apostles an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The claim of our faith is something very unbelievable. I will acknowledge that. People don't rise from the dead. That has never happened before or since within history as far as I know. And yet, isn't it the best way to live? As unbelievable as the claims of our faith may seem, haven't you found that living out and living your life by these patterns, these rhythms, by these promises, that it just makes life better, more joyful? It sounds too good to be true, but maybe that's it. It's just better to live by faith than without, I think. Where would we be if we didn't believe the miracle of the resurrection? It's a question I often ask myself around this time of year. What if I found out that it wasn't true? What would that mean for my life? In so many of these things, we can't systematically prove that it didn't happen. And in the same sense, we probably can't systematically prove for some people that it did happen. But certainly millions, billions of people have had their lives changed because of this story of an empty tomb and of angels appearing and of Jesus rising from the dead. What does it mean for our life to live by this story? One more verse for us. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And then he went home amazed at what had happened. We come back to the theme of the empty tomb. That's all Peter needed to see. He sees the empty tomb and the grave clothes that have been left behind, and he's amazed and confused, which is probably where we wind up most of the time too, isn't it? That's why I like Peter. He's so human. Uh, and sometimes that's how we feel about the miracles of God. We're amazed and we're confused. It's hard to make sense of them all and to put them all in order in our logical minds. But we just recognize that maybe God is capable of something beyond our imaginations and our grasp. And furthermore, we recognize the ways that these stories 
can give so much hope and joy and direction and meaning to our life. And so maybe they're just these stories, the story of the resurrection. Maybe it's just so beautiful that it has to be true. It has to be true. And it's just better to believe it and take it on faith. That's why it's called faith. It's because we can't fully grasp and understand the ways and the miracles of God. We take it on faith. And in taking it on faith, we discover grace that knows no bounds. Hope for our life that has no limits, that that can't be squashed out because we know that God is powerful, more powerful than death. This has been, friends, a Bible study on Luke 24. I leave you with all of those questions to ponder in your heart. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? How can you remember God more fully? What would it mean if you just were to see the empty tomb that dot, 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 that ellipsis of what is possible and what's to come. And then what does it mean to just take these stories, as amazing as they are, to take them on faith and to let them guide and lead our life? I hope you've enjoyed this thorough study of the resurrection story in Luke's gospel. I'm Pastor Nate. Thanks for listening to the Together for Good podcast. Stay in peace, everyone.